Mom Bell never cut anybody off for what they said. No matter what crimes they committed, no matter what else. Just for not paying the bill. Yes. Right. You pay your bill, you can have it. Otherwise, we don't care what you're doing. We will let the cops listen in if they show up with a warrant. (laughs) But otherwise, otherwise, and, and that's. I think that's where we should be. Yeah. Something. Similar. I think yep. of the four of us, I'm the only one who's ever lived in a country that the government of the country did carrier grade deep packet inspection and watched what everybody did online all the time. And it's not a fun experience. I would say you three currently live in a country that does that. No, 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 no. It was, it wasn't a secret <laughs> thing. It was a, you do it too. Come on. Welcome to the practical operations podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about deplatforming. Before we go any further, we need to say the following very clearly. The views and opinions expressed in the Practical Operations Podcast are our own and do not reflect the official policy or position of our employers, sponsors, or any other referenced entities. We are going to stay away from politics as much as possible in this episode, but that cannot be entirely avoided. Are you interested in spreading and promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So this week we're talking about kind of the, the fallout effects of what happened recently when the and again we're going to try to say out of the politics of this as much as possible but a bunch of folks in washington dc stormed the capitol and the direct and immediate effects of that were the social media network they were using to communicate on parlor was kicked off of the apple app store the google play store and the amazon hosting services terminated their ec2 instances a couple of days later and this is effectively removing their ability to have a platform that's called deplatforming when this kind of thing happens. And we wanted to kind of analyze the technical side of this, the business risk side of this, and talk a little bit about the practicality of it. You know, January 6th was one hell of an epiphany. It was a, uh, it was a rough day for sure. Um, I was, I was actually watching it for the, cause I thought something else was going to happen politically just, you know, with inside the, the natures of how our government works, but then to see something completely different was actually very, uh, very shocking. Yeah. Living in the Netherlands, we were, <laughs> we got contacted by a friend saying, hey, are you watching this? Or watching what? Because we don't have us news as easily. And we stayed up very late watching nude feeds coming from the States with our chins on the ground. And can we say more strongly, you know, how much we condemn violence to solve political problems? Just putting that out there. Absolutely. 100% agreed. Yeah, I'm not going to support what happened in any way, shape, or form. Protest is fine. Violence is not. Free speech is fine. And that's where things get interesting. Because a lot of folks are saying that this is a free speech issue. And... By all rights, it isn't actually a free speech issue. The first absolutely bars the government from passing laws about about your speech. It does nothing about non-governmental entities, and I would say private or- organizations. But 
people will then quibble about, oh, the company's public. Well, it's not a public entity. It's not owned by a government. So there are terms of services all companies have, they have with their users. And the the press releases that came out said from Apple and from, I think Apple and Amazon, I don't think Google put out a press release that I can recall. Basically that we have been talking to them about terms of service violations. They've not been able to follow them. They're off the platform. So, so you're entering into a private relationship with a company governed by these terms of services, but yet those terms of services, as I'm sure you've noticed, can morph over time. And they've quickly been morphing of late. Yeah, and that's where I don't want to say I have a problem with what occurred. I I don't agree with what the platform is promoting, but that is a slippery slope, right? Where uh, you have these companies that are dropping down to fewer and fewer who control essentially the internet. And, uh, you know, it, it almost feels like the federal government or the, the, the laws of the federal government, you know, I think average, the average U S citizen violates at least three a day and, or it's three in a lifetime or something like that. You, you're basically breaking enough rules to where if someone really wanted to, they could, they could charge you. And I feel like that's the same with these, the way the terms of services are, are crafted to where if someone really wants to kick you off their platform, they can. I think the term is selective enforcement. There you go. And I agree with you. They, they do it. They are very selective. Um, and they'll, they'll all say, well, we don't have the manpower to police absolutely everything. So we don't see it all. And we only go after ones that really rise to the top and are egregious. Oh, and, and to be clear, I mean, it was obvious that, especially in my opinion, in AWS's case, but I'm sure Apple and Google felt the same way. And it was, you know, no matter how much these, you know, parlor is paying us, it's going to cost us more in other opportunities if we don't get them off our platform. And this reminds me of an incident from a couple of years ago where the Daily Stormer, which I believe was a neo-Nazi or at least far right wing website, was yes. deplatformed by a lot of a lot of folks. But Cloudflare kept on kept on basically fronting their their organization because Cloudflare's policy had been we are very neutral about the content behind our proxies. We are just providing a service. And one morning, Matthew Prince, the CEO and co-founder of Cloudflare, put out a blog post that said. I made the difficult decision last night, essentially, to end our business relationship with the Daily Stormer, and the site disappeared. It's it it couldn't survive without a CDN of the size of, of Cloudflare, and so it was gone. And then Cloudflare is taking of... a lot of flack uh, for supporting uh, uh, fringe websites and beliefs and services um, in the in the Bay Area community and really everywhere. And I know people that don't want to do business with Cloudflare because of the stance that they've taken to not police content. And looking back even further, we have incidents like, well, not incidents, but we have organizations like the Pirate Bay, which is one of the largest copyright infringement promoting organizations on earth, or in terms of facilitation. And they have managed to stay afloat for decades at this point, moving from hosting provider to hosting provider, country to country, place to place. And they're still around, but they have been aggressively pursued by almost every government that cares about copyright to get them to not exist anymore. Right. So one of the things that this whole thing brings up is when you're going through your SEC, um, I think it's your, the 10K form, there's a section in the form about your business risks. And 
people list, you know, earthquake, natural disaster, act of God kind of stuff. And they also list if the market forces change underneath us, if Apple won't approve our store, our app for the app store or whatever has become more recently one of the risks you list. Because if Apple decides that you compete with them or you're you're in violation of the rules, see Epic Games, suddenly you have a huge issue with getting your app in front of you know hundreds of millions of active users. So it's a business risk. Now, the 10K section for a lot of especially startups is going to have to list if we run afoul of the AWS terms of service or if we run afoul of the GCP terms of service or we run afoul of Linode or whoever, we may be out of business before we can do anything about it. Yeah, and I, I think that's why um, the Cloudflare example and why I personally was very... Um, I respected their decision, Cloudflare's, at the time to to keep doing what they were doing, just because to me, Cloudflare is much closer to the air quote pipe than, say, AWS. Uh, they feel very much like a DNS provider, a registrar, or even your ISP. Um, and to me, those three players have to be as neutral as possible because they literally hold the keys to the internet. I mean, if your registrar says, we're not going to let you have this domain name anymore. You're you, for most people, you're going to be you know dead in the water. I mean, you could give people IPs to look at, but most of your users are not going to be able to understand that. It's tough though because they've been gone after by governments and legal entities going to the registrars, to going to those people, going after the folks behind them just using that pipe and and. You know, until we have a better legal stance on that they are a neutral pipe, I, while I would love that they were a neutral pipe, I, I don't think they can legally take that stance and survive well because they don't have any legal backing. Right. No, I, I agree with you. I'm just saying if if I had my wish, it would be that, especially your ISP, but the, the closer you get to the end user, the less hands-on they are with the content, just because your options start to become limited. I mean, especially people who are in rural areas who only have one provider, uh, one internet provider, if they cut them off, they're effectively cut off from the world to an extent. I mean, you might still have a cell phone, but... And what do you do right now? Okay, dad's doing something wrong, so they cut off the family's ISP, the ISP cuts them off, and the kids are in virtual school right now. Right, absolutely. <laughs> It's not. It's, it's a very, very complex issue, and I and I really think that there needs to be a, a legal stance from the Fed or from states, but probably from the Fed of who is neutral. Who is neutral, and you can't go after them for what somebody's saying, because you certain. We were talking about before the recording. Ma Bell never gave a crap about what you said on your phone line. Well, and, you know, and interesting enough, that is what Section Two Thirty is for. For people like Twitter and Facebook. And that's why, as someone who dabbles in First Amendment issues and speech and that kind of thing, uh, I find it very interesting, both sides, who attack Section 230, which essentially just says you cannot sue Facebook or Twitter for how they make their moderation decisions, and you can't sue them for what other users say on their site. That's effectively what 230 says. Now, both sides will twist and say things and You'll hear things like, well, they're not a provider, they're a um, a publisher, and that means that they have to do things differently. And that, that's actually, if you read the actual law, it's not, there's no difference. 
So this is, um, so, this is the safe harbor provision of the DMCA, correct? No, this is uh, what's called Section 230. It's it's a little different than the safe harbor of DCMA. Okay, I don't I don't know Section 230 offhand. I'll, th- I'll we'll throw a link into the show notes for other listeners who are similar to me that not quite knowing what this is. That's gotten a lot of popularity recently with yes um, some of the stimulus packages <laughs> that the Republicans in power have asked for and not gotten. Well, and, and, is, and to be fair, sorry, it's go oh, I was going to say, go ahead. Well, I, I, to get political, it cracked me up so much. The people going after two thirty are the ones whose sites would run afoul of it the most. Absolutely, two thirty <laughs> is what keeps. I mean, because at some point, you know, if, if two thirty wasn't around, Twitter would be banning so many accounts. Facebook would be doing the same yes. thing because they don't want to have the liability. And that's what two third, uh, Section 230 is all about, is to try and say, hey, we're not going to hold these companies responsible for this stuff because they, we knew, it, it, thankfully, whoever, what, you know, whoever contributed this, this understood that, hey, there's going to be such scale at this, no one can possibly moderate everything that, that comes in. Yeah, fa- companies so, like Facebook and Twitter would be spending an inordinate amount of time and resources on content moderation to the point that their business model isn't worth it. Right, and so they would just turn it off. They would, if you, if you were anywhere, uh, it didn't matter what it was. If you were uh, pushing boundaries, they'll just cut you off because they don't want the risk. Whereas with two thirty, that gives you the, that gives them the out to say, well, you know, we're trying our best. We missed that. You know, sorry, basically. But they're also, you know, their own companies running their own things. If they don't like what you're doing, you know, they can cut you off. Well, that's, that's the other you side know, of the I argument, mean, honestly, is at what point do we say the government is allowed to dictate to a company who they do business with? And that's a hard line to walk. Well, now that's well, they, that's where we get into, in my opinion, actually get into First Amendment issues, because that is the federal government telling somebody what they can or can't do. Whereas, you know, right now everybody's crying afoul of First Amendment issues, but it's just between people and companies that's or private entities. That, that doesn't matter. If you're allowed to go on the street corner and preach whatever you want, that's for totally First Amendment um, protected. Right. You can't then go into the building that's next door into their auditorium and start screaming it at the people for who are in there for another meeting. Right. And, you know, I... I, I don't think the government needs to be saying, yes, you can go in and say what you want. And no. And, and right. And I agree. And I don't think they can either. Because, again, that's you're now you're running into the the businesses First Amendment uh, protections, which is to say, you know, we're not going to we, we're allowing what we what, what people say or do in, in our building. And it's the private conversation that we have between friends, between one or two people. Versus the megaphone aspect that these platforms can provide, such as running a podcast where lots of people might listen to it. (laughs) Ha ha. Right. Or a couple like us. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other famous deplatformings was Alex Jones, obviously. He had his whole media empire built upon his kind of conspiracy theory podcasts and his ranting and raving on various things. And at some point, I, I don't remember exactly when it was. Folks started saying, okay, you have crossed a line. We are taking you out of our of our ecosystem. And very quickly, he found himself without an audience because the audience 
was taken away from him by. But they could still go to Infowars.com well, th- and get could. stuff from him. They could, but a lot of his draw disappeared. Um, right. Absolutely. So in a way, there, there's a there's a there's an outsized influence that a handful of private companies have on public discourse and on governmental action, honestly. And that's what makes me more uncomfortable. Um, Not related to this directly, but there was that whole thing about the COVID tracking system that I think Germany was trying to put together. And Germany's initial pitch was, there's this app you're going to run all the time and it's going to upload your location and who you are to a central, you know, database the government's going to maintain and run and secure because that never goes wrong. And Apple and Google essentially said, no, you're not. We're not going to do do that. Here is a better, safer, more secure way that if every anything gets compromised, it doesn't leak the real location and data of all these people. And we run the platforms, so if you don't like it, you don't get it at all. And that was an interesting statement. I, I think it was the right move at the time, but it does raise the question of how much power do private companies have over kind of the world. Are private companies essentially state actors? Some of them are to the point of yes. I mean, there's when you look at some of them are bigger than state actors. Anyway. Yeah, when when you look at some of the companies that are basically powering the internet, uh, essentially Fang, if you if you want to think of it, those group of companies, uh, they all are, have a very uh, big hand in what we see or what we can see, what ads we see. Yeah. Or just what content we see in general. And I'm sure that people listening to this podcast know what Fang is, but to be clear, that's Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. It varies. I mean, as the years come and go, things things change. I I don't I remember not having the my acronym lifetime. stays the same, but the companies change. Right. I remember in my lifetime, <laughs> um, Apple not exactly being a powerhouse of anything of any you know reasonable level. So yeah. And and now they have, you know, a powerful walled garden that they hold the keys to. And um, one of the and, largest companies on the planet. Yeah, right. And I, I do agree, uh, Brendan, you brought the point, point earlier. It's, it's very interesting to see the spat between them and Epic Games. Um, you know, I mean, Apple is in a very powerful position to just say, okay, well, we think you're violating our terms. We're going to take you off our platform and... You know, for some people, I, I, the Epic Games, I think, is in a little different position. But if you're an, if you're a indie developer and you are developing a single game on iOS and you get deplatformed off of Apple's App Store, you you're you're, you're dead. dead. Yeah, that's a huge source of revenue for any indie game developer, and to not be able to collect that, that's a business risk. I get back back to the SEC forms. Like you have to 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 tell your investors, you have to tell the public that, hey. um, we're always at risk that one day the rules can change and we no longer have a distribution engine. We no longer, no longer have a a way to collect money from our customers. We no longer have any of those things and we can basically make two, two payrolls and then we're done. Right. And, and also to be clear, I'm not saying I don't have a solution to that. I'm just more saying that that is a problem where we have a few companies that control a lot of, or have a lot of power and, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I me personally, I'm very limited to, to suggest a governmental action there. Um, but I, I just don't know what what can be done. Uh, you know, I mean, theoretically, the uh, androids are in a little different position because you could just sideload apps or 
and things like that, but Apple is much more popular than than Android. Or excuse me, iOS is much more popular than Android. So Um I think the numbers actually disagree with you. Think, yeah, I think the pure market share well, okay, Android raw market share, but But the flip side is how many how many of your average users know how to size? Right, well and right, exactly. Yeah, and that, that so that's really I, the risk is Yeah. And also, most of the money is on Apple's platform. Yes, I guess Android has the lion's share of the, vir- the of the market, but when you flip the coin to see where the, most of the money is being made, it's in iOS. Agreed. I, I, I don't know the actual split at this point, but yeah. for a very long time, that was absolutely clear that the paying customers were generally on the App Store and the ones who were ad-served were generally on the Play Store. I don't know if that's still true. I know Apple has been doing a lot of advertising, re- relaxing their rules about advertising in various ways um, mm-hmm. over the years. Not not very recently, but over the years. So I don't know how that influences things now. So, Jared, you're a fan of net neutrality, I hear. <laughs> um, again, you know, I don't know if, if, <laughs> if there needs to We've be... We've danced around that quite a bit, but we haven't actually said it. Um, yeah, well, that's, that actually is true. I mean, you know, I do think that ISPs should be essential, you, you know, they, they are communications providers. I mean, they, they, it, it, that needs to come down to that. Um, you know, the, 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 I think where the picky part or where the, the sticky part comes into play, uh, is that you have ISPs that are not just ISPs. They're not just giving you debt packets of data. They also own media companies they are they are media companies and then they have their own offerings they would love for you to use versus somebody else um so you know uh i guess the someone who's a free market thinker thinks well if they want to provide that at cost or lower to their own people that's you know fine by them but i the the problem that you run into is that, that there's natural monopolies right that there's some providers who you're stuck with you can't use another you can't change you can't just base your decisions on the air quote free market you're forced into certain choices so all that to say is that it's a complicated it's all complicated (laughs) none of these conversations or decisions are easy or clear-cut in any way i think that that's one of the take-homes from from our discussion here is that there are so many of these things that for one situation it is probably right, but there are other situations where it's more questionable. And at what point do you say, yeah, this, this shouldn't be a private entity doing it or, well, we need to take action of some variety because other reasons. So where is the split? Where do you actually draw that line? And I, I don't have a good or clear answer for that. And part of the problem that I see, especially as we involve political parties in government is each side will sensationalize the possible outcomes of net neutrality for an example. Um, One size will say that, you know, enacting net neutrality will be the death of the internet as we know it. And basically the other side suggests that, you know, the sun will explode if we don't have it. And sensationalizing either point of view isn't really helpful in making informed decisions or understanding what this actually is. 
Well, that's true for a lot of issues anymore. That there's no rational debate that it's rational debate and... based on facts yeah. and science. Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. We'll have to cut yeah. this. So to, it's 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 funny that we're we've gone this route because um, as we've discussed, I've I didn't I started a new job not long ago, and one of the one of the tasks I was giving, which is a long running, was to develop our deplatforming uh, I don't even know, contingency um, plan policy yeah your cloud um, you agnostic know, what plan happens, what happens when we run a foul and we get booted or we decide that oh this hosting is not for us we need to move and you know yeah it's been a back burner project of mine for the months that I've been working for this company, but believe me, the, the it's raced in its visibility a little bit <laughs> recently. And, you know, it's something I've been grappling with from a technical point, standpoint of what do we do when it happens? How do you, how do you prepare for it and, and, or what do you need to do? Yeah, what do you do when you, when the business decides that the risks of staying with Amazon are too great because there is public backlash against something Amazon has done and you need to move to a different platform? That's significant. It is. It's huge. <laughs> and we're not even a large company. And, you know, the more you use their services, the more you're intertwined. And it's like, how do we get out of there? How do we replicate this elsewhere? Right. It is damn Obviously, hard. you just invest in Kubernetes. That's right. <laughs> I mean, if everything is a Docker container image in Kubernetes, um, you know, clearly that solves cloud agnostic issues, right? That's right. You can just move it, move it to another platform. Sure, and you're sure done. enough. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if only it was that easy. I mean, just point kubectl and you know, dash f and whatever. <laughs> Yes, obvious from all the giggling that that is <laughs> so not the case. Now, uh, to be fair, I, I I think my position before, especially when we were talking about um, you know multi provider, is that you should embrace your provider's strengths and use their services. And I I actually still think that. However, I guess I'm going to add a caveat to that, and that is to to make the right decisions with that. Like for instance, uh, if you're on Amazon. Uh, or you're in AWS, uh, and you can use uh, DynamoDB instead of setting up your own MongoDB servers or or something like that, or another key value store, then that makes sense to use that with the caveat being, okay, well, if we have to move over to another provider, we're going to have to probably change how we interact with our DB layer. Yeah. But, you know, I think you should, it's still good to, to do that because DynamoDB will, will perform very well for you and most likely GCP or another provider is going to have a similar service. You will just have to translate how you connect or communicate in your app. And I think that's a small price to pay for the performance gains and possibly even cost savings that you'll get on those individual providers. And a lot of that argument honestly comes down to how profitable is your company? If you are on the lower end of that margin, if you are not as profitable as you really want to be, it's going to be hard to sell to the the C level that you really need to spend engineer time and operational cost dollars on. Let's make sure that we have the right pieces in the right places, and we've thought this all through. And yeah, it's I've said before: run a risk analysis, choose your platform, use good practices, Docker images, etc., 
good Terraform. And usually your company's not big enough to, to need more disaster recovery than running in multi-regions across the globe will provide you. Right. Usually. And that, that's kind of the tact I've been taking is, you know, what, what is our risk? What are the chances of this going to happen? Given what my employer does, we're not, we're not public. Nobody, nobody sees what we're doing. It's really, the chances are very, very small of us getting deplatformed by their choice. I mean, if there's a natural disaster that stops AWS completely from functioning, there's no way that my company is going to be able to do business anyway. There's something larger exactly. at play. However, right. yeah. you know, being able to, su- to survive US East, one going down is important. But then we introduce the social political issues of which are really probably a greater risk than a, a disaster scenario that we're used to planning for. Uh, you know, what happens if there's a social uprising and we get deplatformed because of what happened this year? Or conversely, um, I'm thinking back a couple of years ago when I think it was Russia made the call that all servers that operated Russian user data had to be physically within Russia. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly because they wanted their security services, I think, to be able to issue subpoenas and stuff against those servers. Yes. And then you have to decide what what are we going to do? What happens if the U.S. government were to make a, a similar ruling tomorrow and your company does business with people in Europe or in Australia or other parts of the world? Now you have to say, well, my customers don't want their data in the U.S. Now what do we do? And that's been my tech with, with working on this project is I've been looking at it more from a point of we decide for whatever reason that we need to leave the provider and go to another one. That may be a we decide it happens to have tomorrow. You know, there, the speed is up for debate. But I've been looking at it more from the that it's it was our decision for whatever reason because I just don't the chances given my employer's business of us running afoul of anything is much much smaller than a parlor or somebody else who's much more public and that's probably a really good risk analysis thing to do on a periodic basis every six months or a year look over what would it take to get us out of any of your major providers of any service you do, not necessarily your ISP or your hosting provider, but let's say you're doing business with a publisher or you're doing business with somebody who provides a security product to you, or you're doing business with anybody really, what would it take to unwind that relationship and set it up with somebody else? You should have that kind of risk analysis done anyway. Yes. Well, it's just good business sense I've as well. talked more exactly. about doing good risk analysis stuff in the last six months, then I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird. Well, I mean, a big part of what we do, a big part of the operations job is risk analysis. It's, it's how much energy are you going to put into preventing this particular set of problems from happening? And it's as you solve the basic cases and as you add more money and as you add more time and attention to it, you eventually definitely get to diminishing returns. So... To get the extra nine, to get the extra pair of nines, yeah. it's going to take a lot more money. And at and some understanding point, where that line is, yet me being trained 
from very early in my career to to analyze and plan for what will go wrong. Fine lines. Yeah, but I mean that is risk analysis. That that is essentially yep. doing the, the 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 opportunity cost compare or the that is essentially that is essentially doing the what's the what's the phrase for it? There's a cost analysis phrase. Uh the risk benefit analysis. Cost benefit know. analysis. There we go. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. essentially, you're doing a cost benefit analysis of how much is this going to, to to impact me to get this done, either in dollars or hours or you know rack space units or whatever, and what benefits are get out of it. And you you have to do that constantly. Yeah, I've I've always you know same as you. We've grown up doing this, and it's always do everything you can to for stability and and to make sure everything works. But I've now gotten to the point where I'm having to say, look at things, you know, higher from a higher up saying, you're right, that would be better. But the amount of time it's going to take you to get us there doesn't make sense. I need you to go work on something else and we'll accept this risk. And from an engineering standpoint, that as an engineer, it, it's really hard to say that sometimes. But there's a budget and there's man hours and you can't use them always the way you want you it's a business and having that written and planned for invaluable yep i was going to say that one of the the really nice things about being a junior level employee is when the boss comes to you and says nope not working on that you get to say oh well i guess we're not working on that sure somebody else higher up the stack (laughs) has made the decision that that thing does not present enough of a risk for us and you're not yet dealing with the conversations you're not yet dealing with the no no no. we have to argue about this because this is actually really important if you enjoyed the episode please share it with your friends and coworkers. we would also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show in overcast apple podcasts or your favorite podcast directory additionally we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night. It's the Rico.